with us and looking forward to a new semester and if we can help you, pray for you, know that you are being prayed for. I have two sons of mine starting on Monday as well, so may the Lord bless you as you apply yourself. Let us help you and pray for you. If we can give any assistance, let us know. Like, if you would, turn to your copy of God's Word to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're in a continuing study through the pastoral epistles. We've titled it Instructions for the Church for Teaching, Leading, and Equipping. It is First uh, and Second Timothy and Titus. In particular, the entire study really guidelines for public worship. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, uh, pursuing godliness. And so, guidelines for public worship really comes right out of Paul's letter to Timothy, First Timothy three fifteen, where he says, if I'm delayed in coming, I'm going to write this to you so you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in a household of faith, which is the pillar and support of the truth. So really, it encapsulates the reason for the letters that we know how and what to do inside the church. And so that's how we pursue it. We take some principles as we pull them through the, out of God's Word that can help us understand what we should be doing. Like if you would, turn to chapter 4, verse 6. We're going to read through verse 10. That's our passage for today may be a blessing to you. Let's pray as we begin to study the Word of God. Lord, we thank you today, as, and we don't take it for granted that we have your Word to us. We very much want to know what it says, what it means by what it says, and then uh, how that applies to us. So your Holy Spirit has to do that. No words of mine can accomplish that. So I pray that you strike from hearts words that vary or distract, and instead put your words in so they might uh, do the work that you desire for them to do. We love you. We, we honor you today. We're glad for your word. You've elevated equal to your own name. So, Lord, help us to revere it that way today. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. There are a lot of examples in, in the world of purpose statements, particularly in the corporate world. Here in the body of Christ, we have... Uh, a purpose statement. It's the great commandment and great commission. I don't think you can read through the Bible and not come up with these two things as the reason why we exist. The great commandment, I love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and with all your mind. And this is the great and foremost command. And the second is like it, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. It is our purpose for existing, to love the Lord, to delight ourselves in him, and to reflect that into others. And then Matthew chapter 28, verse 19 Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Lord, I'm with, Lord, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So those two statements really sum up the existence of the believer. This is why we're here. To the extent that we conform to those things is to the extent we understand why we were created and what our purpose is here on the earth. We have a mission statement on Berean's website, too. Our mission statement, teach the word, and on that foundation, cultivate Love expressed to God in obedience and in service to the church and to the world. Really just taking the Word of God exactly as it's written, helping us to understand those things. And our goal, 1 Timothy 1.5, that we went over a number of months ago, but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. Our instruction, based on the Word of God, is to produce these kinds of things. That is our goal. Now, there are hundreds of purpose statements and goals in the public square. You don't have to go very far to read them. Some of you may know. JetBlue, to inspire humanity both in the air and on the ground. I, I've flown JetBlue. I'm not sure they wanted to inspire the thoughts I had when I stepped off the plane. Um, LinkedIn, of course, uh, to connect the world's professionals to make them more productive and successful. PayPal, to build the web's most convenient, secure, cost-effective payment solution. Nike, 
bring inspiration and innovation to every athlete in the world. American Express, we work hard every day to make American Express the world's most respected service brand. And you can go on and on, and you can find them all over the place. And of course, those secular statements of purpose come from an understanding that it's important to define why a company or individual exists, and then translating that understanding into what they'll need to do or be in order to be successful or to define what it means to win in whatever their particular field may be. Legendary coach John Wooden knew how to win. Over the course of his 29-year career, Wooden would lead his teams to 620 victories and 10 national titles. Wooden coached UCLA to seven straight national championships, a feat no other team has even come close to achieving. Wooden retired from coaching and walked away from college basketball as one of the winningest coaches of all time, but beating an opponent was never Wooden's idea of success. In a TED Talk, Wooden said his idea of success was, quote, peace of mind attained only through self-satisfaction and knowing you made the effort to do the best of which you were capable, end quote. And that produced the kinds of things in his life and in those he coached that we know about. Over the past several times in the Word together, we've been looking hard at this fourth chapter of Paul's uh, first letter to Timothy. Paul begins to focus Timothy on some of the important objectives that he needs to have in place as he leads this wayward church back to where she needs to be. And Paul even gave Timothy a goal he was to aspire to back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. We just read it. Uh, this is where we find our goal as a church. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And we, we read that, we understand that was not what was going on inside the church. For verse 6 says, For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussions. That's what we don't want as you look around, though, at the modern church, that seems to be what we major on anymore, fruitless discussions. We don't take time in the Word. We don't explain it to people. What we do is we talk about platitudes and we talk about feel-goods and five steps to a successful life and whatever it may happen to be. Those things are useless and fruitless types of discussions. Paul said that's the way the church is now in Ephesus. And as he came there, he got rid of two of the leaders who were there and then told Timothy, you need to straighten out the rest of them and make sure that our goal from, uh, of our instruction are, produces these kinds of things. And Paul didn't want Timothy to be fruitless. He didn't want the church to be fruitless. But some had begun to shape the church in that way in their teaching and to change that course. He spent chapters 2 and 3 really laying down some instructions for the qualifications of leadership and what to say to false teachers. Uh, because we know that people were falling away. He said that in the end uh, days, some will fall away listening to uh, false teachers, to doctrines of demons, and, and following false teachers who are always teaching those kinds of doctrines. And concerning, in this particular case, how to be spiritual and how to be godly. And as we approached our current section, then he begins to, and Paul dealt with those things, and then he begins to reaffirm well, re, where real godliness and real holiness and real spiritual health come from in the true pursuit of those things. And Paul shows Timothy what the healthy kind of spiritual food is going to look like and instructs him not to exclude certain things from his physical diet, but to include certain things in his spiritual diet. And the first thing he said you need to include and make sure you're nourished on, he says, are the words of faith, which just refers to biblical or scriptural writing a study, and to think, and to meditate, and ingest the words of Scripture as a habit over, and over, and over, and to be able to think biblically. 
And then secondly, the second one he said you needed to focus on and take in constantly and nourish yourself is sound doctrine. The theology then that comes out of the Word of God. That's sound doctrine. The application, if you will, of biblical truth. Seeing action that is required. So in, then in order for Timothy to be, and this is the whole focus, a good servant of Jesus Christ, he would have to be nourished this way and then nourish the church as an outflow then of his own good spiritual health. And we saw that, th- that this is just as relevant today as, uh, as it was then. If you want to be a good servant, and Paul uses the word servant as opposed to elder, he came through the first couple of chapters talking about those who lead an elder's position, but then he refers to Timothy as a servant, just like he refers to himself as a servant numerous times, a servant of the church, and it's a much broader application. If you serve the kingdom in whatever capacity it is, then very, very basic, if you want to be a good servant, then you have to have good spiritual health. You have to take these things in, and then you're going to put those things out. So servants of the church are called then above and beyond all other elements in the ministry to be skilled in the study and the application of the Word of God. And so that principle number one is we pulled these principles out in this pursuit of godliness. A faithful minister will confront false teaching and constantly point out biblical principles. And then number two sprung right out of it. In order to do that, true godliness in a faithful teacher is found in a diet constantly nourished by the Word of God. And so we saw this last time, not only is a godly minister going to feed himself correctly with proper spiritual food, we also saw that he is going to avoid junk food. Paul says it this way in verse 7. He says this, but have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. And that was number three in our principles, true godliness and a faithful teacher is found in a diet that not only takes in the right things, but excludes the wrong kinds of things, the junk food of ungodly teaching. And that was a very broad application there. And we saw that last time. A good servant's going to exclude this from his life. And to the extent that he's doing those things, he is successful then from God's perspective. And this phrase, have nothing to do with, we saw as a very strong Greek compound verb in the imperative. In other words, it's non-negotiable. We are to do certain things and not to take in certain things, to avoid, to reject, to shun, present, middle imperative. You're involved in the shunning. You're involved in the excluding as it comes into your life. And what are you supposed to exclude? Well, worldly fables. And that's the adjective babelos and then the noun muthos. Worldly is profane things. Anything that contradicts what the Lord says. Avoid them, he says. Shun them. Just like you would if you're going to be healthy, you're going to shun things that are very bad for you uh, physically. You're going to shun these kinds of things. And the second one is fables. It's where we get our word myth. But last time we looked at the background of this word and we saw that's just anything opposite of the truth. And here it indicates anything that the world may offer, any kinds of things that the educational system may offer, anything in pop culture, in the privacy of your own home. It, it, it comes in any number of attractive packages. And so you're going to have to be very discerning to recognize whether it is opposite of the truth, whether it's worldly. And then if you want to be healthy spiritually, you're going to have to exclude them from your life. And we look at that language because here it's very strong. And we didn't look at this last time. This is a good parallel passage from Romans chapter 16, verse 19. Paul says this to the church. He says, for the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you. And I would just pause right there to say, wouldn't you like that as a letter coming in reference to the church where you attend and serve that the apostle Paul would write and say, you know what? Everybody's heard about how faithful and obedient you are. That really what that's, if there's anything we're looking for, that's what we're looking for, right? Everybody's got a slogan on a banner or whatever, but Paul said we were obedient and everybody knows it. That's, that's a pretty good one. So he says this about the church, and then he says this, but I want you to be wise in what is good, and then mark this. What's the rest of it? 
innocent in what is evil. That's precisely what we're talking about in our current passage. We're innocent concerning what's evil. We don't, we don't delve into it. We don't try to know it. We're not trying to expose ourselves to it. And it means, as we've said before, you have to saturate yourself with, with the Word of God. Read it and read it and read it and study it so that you're going to know what's wrong with bad teaching when you hear it, and then you avoid it. And avoid, you shun evil things, you shun things from that thought process. And so, Timothy, uh, Paul tells Timothy, in every other, and anybody else who wants to serve in the church, this just takes all of those in, anybody who desires to serve the kingdom is going to exclude from their spiritual life, their spiritual diet, anything that's opposed to what's holy, and reject anything that's opposite of the truth. And it's very, very broad. There's almost no limit to that. And we know in the last of the last days, there doesn't appear to be a limit to this false types of teaching. Transforming the mind is a precious thing. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says we're to do that. Not to be conformed to the world, but transform our mind. That's a difficult thing to do, isn't it? And the only way you're going to transform your mind is you're going to be saturated by the Word of God. You're going to have to know what it says and begin to think biblically. That's precisely what Paul is telling Timothy. If you're going to have anything to say to the church that's going to be helpful to them, you're going to have to have a good diet that excludes those wicked things, excludes those things that are good. Paul wants those who serve in leadership then to have a pure mind, saturated with the truth. There's no place... For the almost market, infinite variety of shallow or radical or ignorant imaginations that are deceived. There's no place for that in your life. Exclude it. And then we saw the last part of verse 7 and 8. He says, on the other hand, you're going you're gonna to have the things you eat and, and you're not going to eat spiritually. You're going to be these things. Now, take this in, he says. Discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit. But godliness is profitable for all things, since it has promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So here, Paul gives not only the right diet, but along with a healthy diet, it's going to include exercise. And we saw last time that when he says discipline yourself, that word discipline has to do with the word gymnasium. That's where we get our word. So when he says that to his, his people, everybody knows what he's talking about. There was a gymnasium in every Greek town. Everybody was given to this kind of thing. And that was principle number four in pursuing godliness. A good servant, a faithful servant market will work out spiritually. Again, it's in the command form. So it's not an option. You exclude bad things. You take in good things, all commands, and then you work out spiritually. So don't expose yourself to anything contrary to truth and do work out in godliness. And really, it implies anything that goes along with a physical workout. And so Paul uses all that imagery then to, to push this point home. He says, work out for the purpose of godliness. Now, you need to exercise, he said. And if you're going to train, and we saw last time, that's the sense of the passage. If you're going into training for godliness, go into training for virtue. Go into training for the inner man, the soul. Go into training for the spirit. This has to do with worship. It has to do with devotion and being faithful and sincere spiritual integrity and holiness. Keep yourself, he says, in training for godliness. That's the sense of it. That means to know God's will and to do God's will, see? It's your desire to do that. Training is doing it right over and over again. It helps muscle memory. It helps strength. It helps stamina. It helps quickness. It helps reaction time. All those things that you spend time in the gym to do spiritually when you're spending time, this is what it's going to help for you. Train yourself to know God's Train yourself to do God's will. True training and also is hard, isn't it? It's painful to be in the gym. It's not fun to train yourself and, and push yourself, and then the next day you're, you're sore and you don't want to move. 
This is the idea. And today there's a lot of things that are focused on the physical. And it was the same in Paul's day. So Paul comments on it, and it's just as true today as it was then. Look at verse 8. Bodily discipline is only of little profit. So working out the body in the gym, that's what he means. Bodily discipline, working out the body in the gym, that's the exact rendering. And again, everybody knows what he's talking about. There's some profit to it, but only a little. It's just for the physical body. It's just for the now. That doesn't mean there's no benefit. There certainly is. It isn't calling into question the motives for working out. It isn't saying don't do it. It's just a matter of perspective. The benefits are temporary and they're brief. You stop working out five years from now, nobody's going to know that you ever worked out. You received the benefit while you were doing it, but it's temporary and it's brief. But the gains that you make spiritually, you take with you. Never fade away. And the caution then is that the world spends hours and hours and hours on something that is so short-lived so that it becomes its own test. How long are we spending on things that don't last? And so the rest of verse 8 says, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. There are no limits then to the benefits of spiritual discipline. That's Paul's point. If you want to work on something, work on that. Beyond just the physical, it's profitable not just to the body, but the body and the soul. It's profitable not just for a brief time, but for a lifetime and for eternity. You see that? That's Paul's point. For this present life. And working out in godliness is a blessing now. Why? Well, because it produces a rich, fulfilled, blessed, fruitful, effective, useful life for your family and for the kingdom and for the Great Commission and salt and light. You reproduce it in your sons and go out and reproduce it in their families. And, and it, if you want to just keep the, the whole working out and the whole uh, the sports thing going, a starter, if you will, for, for the big place for eternity where the Lord can really put you in a place that's very key. Nobody may know what you did. They may not know what you said, but it may have ripples for the future because you said the right things and somebody came to you for advice and you gave them solid advice and then their life took a different trajectory. See, you're not going to be ready for any of that if you're not training yourself spiritually. The counseling, uh, the encouragement, you're an impact player. It also is good for the life to come. What's that mean? Because these are gains you take with you. You don't lose the gains spiritually that you had. If you stop working physically now a few years, you're going to have nothing to show for what you did. But whatever gains you make spiritually, those are yours and, and those are your victories and those are your sufferings and those are your legacy and your testimony. These are gains that keep on giving. These are gains that bring glory to the Lord. These are gains that make the kingdom look great. Make sure your life is in the right balance, Paul says. Because you don't want to be found spending far more time exercising your body than you spend exercising in regard to your soul. So that should be a good balance for you. You want to take in and have some kind of measure of where you're spending your time and make sure that if you're into the gym, make sure you're not spending more time doing that than you are spending time in the Word of God. If you want to be spiritually fit, and that's a command, you're going to have to work out spiritually. And everybody can understand that, especially people who understand physical workouts. You know, the good servant of Jesus Christ is one who's disciplined unto godliness. And this is just so obvious, uh, much like the previous statement. You know, if you don't have anything to say to nourish the church, you're going to have to be nourished yourself. That's just so obvious, isn't it? If you want to be strong spiritually, you've got to work out spiritually. If, if, you're, if you're discerning and you understand error, make sure you tell everybody about it, right? That was verse 1. If you want to be healthy, eat the right things. Avoid the wrong things. Just very, very basic instruction. Not difficult to understand, but difficult to apply. 
Now, as we hit verse 9, we can see Paul encourages Timothy. He wants the, the young pastor to uh, see success in terms of, of ministry from God's perspective. Look at verse 9. He says this. And, of course, he, he says, uh, this is what you're doing. You are doing this. And so he's very encouraging to Timothy. Keep doing it more. Right? Keep applying yourself more to these kinds of things. Then he says this. He says, it is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Now, Paul uses that combination quite often. We've seen it already a couple of times in our study, and it just means it's a truism. This is an axiom. Whether you knew it before or not, as the Holy Spirit carries Paul along, he lets us know that this is something that's patently obvious. It's like 1 Timothy 1.15. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. That's a trustworthy statement. It's an axiom. What does it mean? It just means that Paul says, Everybody knows how wicked I was. I persecuted the and he redeemed me. And it has application for every single person who comes along. No one has done too many wicked things for the Lord to, to for the Lord to say no to redemption. You are redeemed even though you've been a wicked sinner if you come in, in uh, repentant faith. That's a faithful saying. Trust everybody knows this. This is how it works. And then 1 Timothy 3.1, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. We looked at that one too. What's it mean? That in the church, in the early church, and even now, if somebody says, I think the Lord's calling me into ministry, that's a fine work you aspire to do. Don't denigrate that work, Paul says. The church recognizes this is a noble thing to do. And then 2 Timothy 2.11, we'll see this later on. It's a trustworthy statement. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. If you've given up your life to find it, if you've repented and, and you, you sought to give the Lord all that you have and you don't belong to yourself anymore, you're going to live with Him. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. So it wasn't just lip service. You really did come to faith. You will reign with Him. If we deny Him, He'll also deny ourselves. You'll never deny Christ if you're truly born again. So if you're denying Him, He denies you. If we're faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. You know, I've said this before to you, and I think you can, you can resonate with it. Sometimes at the end of the day, I look in the mirror, and the only person who knows really that I'm born again is the Lord. I did such a poor job of representing him. I just did a poor job of making decisions. I, all those kinds of things as I think about how the 24 hours expired, and I just think, you know, I'm glad the Lord's always faithful, even when I'm not. He doesn't deny himself, and if I'm his, he knows I'm redeemed. Paul says, these things are faithful sayings. They're axioms. You should know this. This is, this is bopping around in the church in the, early, in the first century. It's still applicable today. And then Titus 3.8. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. What's, what's a trustworthy statement? If you know Christ as your Savior, you're engaged in good deeds. That's just part of your regular life. That's the fabric of your life. It's not some special thing you do, you know, every other week or something you do once a month or once a year. You do some kind of good deeds. You are engaged in good deeds. Paul says this is the truism in the church. You're born again. Good deeds mark your life. And those things are all floating around the church. Every believer knows this. But in particular, what do they know here? Look at verse 10. For it is for this we labor and strive because we fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. One of my favorite passages. I've written this passage. I've sent it as a letter. I've typed it as a, a text message to many of uh, my friends and, and uh, fellow pastors and missionaries around the world. This is, this is our motivation. This is why we do what we do. It's the inner strength that comes in light of whatever you have to, whatever you have to put up with. Just flows wonderfully, too, out of verse 8. Catch this. This is how it's connected. We're not body worshipers. 
We labor and strive, but not so we can be body beautiful. We're not laboring and striving for the perfect physique. That's not how we give our time. We're not spending hours and hours and hours on something that is so short-lived. It is for this, two verbs that he uses to indicate hard work. It is for this. We labor, copiao, anytime you see that verb, present active indicative, that's always talking about working to the point of fatigue or exhaustion. We always do this. We labor. And it becomes uh, this understanding that this is what it looks like always for a believer, and this becomes its own measure. When we, when we serve, we serve to the point of exhaustion. It's always the case. It goes along with this idea of being in the gym and lifting to the point of failure. We know sometimes we get the most benefit as we lift and lift and lift to the point where we cannot lift it anymore. And keeping good form produces great results. This is precisely what Paul's talking about. You're keeping good form to the point where you can't even do anymore. You're exhausted. And then the second one is, uh, is, goes along with it. And strive on a didzo. This is a really cool word. This is present passive indicative. In other words, it's happening to us. So the first one is something we do. The second one is something that's acting on us. People are pushing us hard. Unbelievers are creating a situation where we are striving we're having to strive constantly. Typically, it has to do with working with no recognition, working in outright opposition. You'll know as soon as you begin to stand for Christ on a regular basis in, in, the, in the world that you will begin to have to strive. You know, I said this in the first service. If you go to Thanksgiving and some of your relatives are unredeemed, like I have some, nothing's going to ruin the nice, warm Thanksgiving feeling. Then you begin to talk about Christ. That's pretty much the end of the warm Thanksgiving feelings and the begins of hostility and striving, right? As soon as you bring it up, well, that's what he's talking about here, see? It has to do with the defamation and the chiding that spring out of testimony. But it can do, it has to do too with the gym. You're in the gym, nobody recognizes the time, nobody recognizes the effort, nobody understands what you've put in. Paul said himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, he said, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain. Remember Paul, as he's dealing with the Corinthian church, as we went through those two letters, he recognized they always denigrated him. They never gave him the recognition. He always had to reintroduce himself to the church. He had to tell them he, he had the authority as an apostle, constantly saying these kinds of things, enduring all kinds of hardship. He says, listen, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace did not prove vain. But I, mark this, labored even more than all of them. I worked to the point of exhaustion more often. Yet not I, but grace of God with me. I worked hard, Paul said. I labored. So it really should be axiomatic, right, in the church, that the church is not occupied by a whole bunch of body worshipers, these things that don't last, but that it's a group of people who are in training, and what they're in training for is their soul health, not just their physical health. And they train hard so they can labor and they can strive and so they can be conformed to the will of God. They can be godly and that profits for time and for eternity. They work for the kingdom of God on whom they have set their hope. And this is just such a sweet passage. Listen, godliness, in just a very, uh, very brief summary, godliness is the pursuit of the excellent minister. Those who want to minister, godliness is their pursuit. And he uses all the means of grace available, prayer and Bible study and spiritual disciplines and sometimes fasting and sometimes the Lord's table and the confession of sin and the and, and active service and accountability to someone else and whatever it is, all the spiritual means are applied to the discipline of godliness. 
It's just obvious, right? I mean, I'm, I'm making a big deal of the point, but it just seems so obvious on the outside, doesn't it? Believers should be godly. Ministers should desire to be godly. And that's principle number five. Those that are pursuing godliness work out spiritually so they can give it all for the kingdom of Jesus on whom they have set their hope. And the words we have fixed our hope, elpidzo, that's no platitude. It's in the perfect tense. The idea here is expressed. We pour our lives out in labor and striving with joy and full confidence for the salvation that is our sure reality. It is the habit of our life. We pour that out. And that's why we train. And that's why we exhaust ourselves. And that's why we endure and we sacrifice. And whatever it is that we need to do. I think that's the idea implied here in in Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10. And I really like this. It says, um, this is an encouragement to those who labor a long time. He says, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work. Now that work is not the labor word that we looked at. This is a word for deeds. It's deeds for the kingdom. Whatever it is that you do, it's just a general term for how you involved yourself in kingdom life. He, He doesn't forget your deeds and the love which you have shown towards his name and having ministered and in ministering to the saints. So everything you do for the saints, all your deeds, God doesn't forget it. And then verse 19 says, and, and this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast. The hope, and if you read this, you can read this earlier in Hebrews on your own time, the hope is the certainty of the promise of God. And earlier in the passage, the writer reminded us it's impossible for God to lie and his promise is that we'll receive our inheritance. And so he doesn't forget all the work we do and we do it because we love God, right? Minister to the saints, showing love towards his name. We have this hope because he declares that we have it. That's enough, isn't it? By itself, without any other proofs that we understand that the hope exists, without any other passages, the fact that God says, I have given you an eternal hope, it's never going to be taken away. I can say forever those who place their trust in him. That's enough, isn't it? That's enough. Except that's not the only thing we can find in the word of God. He has secured it by way of the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, and so we work, and God doesn't forget it, and we labor because we serve the God who is the Savior of all men. This is our motivation for being in the spiritual gym. It's our motivation for enduring whatever we have to do and fight whatever fight we have to fight. Beloved, you know, you go into the ministry, you think it's going to be one way. You think the Lord's going to use you in some certain way, and He's going to, he's going to build His church, and it's, everything's going to be prosperous, and it's going to be amazing, and you don't realize the Lord might use you to do a whole different kind of thing, because you're His, right? And you saturate yourself in the Word of God, and you understand what it says, and you, you study it, and you think about it, and you meditate on it, and you begin your answers, and your first responses, and your muscle memory are the Word of God coming out, and then the Lord uses you in whatever way He wants, see, and brings glory to Himself, and He doesn't forget your work. But it's just really wonderful imagery to remind us, if you want to use another sports term, to leave it all on the field. Don't come back in with anything left, right? You know, I, I, it was a blessing to watch my boys run uh, all through high school and in college. And, and I would ask them often, they'll tell you this, when you got all done, did you have any left? It's very hard to judge that in the middle of an 800. How much do you have left? Can you make the finish line? If you do this certain thing at lap three in indoor track, will you be able to cross the finish line or are you going to fade, right? That's the thing you don't want. You don't want to pass seven people and then, you know, seven more people and then the last guy passes you before you get to the finish line. 
So the question is, can you do it, see? Is it, is it going to happen? And it's really wonderful imagery that way, to leave it on the field. And, and this call comes to anyone who desires to be a good servant of Jesus Christ. It's very, very broad. And, and we see this wisdom all throughout life, right? I mean, the discipline of training 10,000 hours enables somebody to run 100 meters in 10 seconds. Here's a, here's, a, here's a great point for you. Usain Bolt said it took him four years to run nine seconds. 9.56, actually. He set the current world record August 2009, 14 years ago. Nobody watched him in the hot days in Jamaica. Nobody saw him in the gym putting the time in. Nobody gave him any kind of credit for that, right? He shows up on the scene and wows everybody. Even came out of running form and still set 9.56. See, nobody was watching when he put the work in. But then when it came time to do it, he was ready. You know, Hafthorpe Jornson set a new world record deadlift in May the 2nd of 2020 of 1,104.52 pounds. He said it took him 12 years to break the record. 12 years of laboring in the gym, 12 years of watching his diet, 12 years of making sure he's taking in what he needs to take in, excluding what he has to exclude, because it was worth it for him to hold the record. But when it comes to spiritual matters, we hesitate. They're doing it for a wreath that doesn't last. I mean, there's nothing wrong with working hard like that. There's nothing wrong with owning the world record. It's amazing what they were able to do. But the hard work was there first, wasn't it? And nobody was watching then. And maybe, you know, they're going through a downtime or when you're in training, you're injured a little bit. You're not pushing as hard as you could push and everybody's denigrating you. You will never do this. It's never going to happen. All of that, right? And yet you're pushing right on through. And that's what they did, see? But when it comes to spiritual disciplines, it just sounds so much like legalism, doesn't it? But remember, we've said this before, legalism is self-centered, the legalistic heart says, I'm going to do this thing so people will know or think I'm godly. I'm going to do it so people will think something about me. But true spiritual training and true spiritual discipline is God-centered. That's the heart that says, I'll do this thing because I love God, Hebrews 6, and want to please Him. I want to give my all for the kingdom, 1 Timothy chapter 4, 10, of the one who's ransomed my life. It's my goal above all other goals to finish the course and get the prize for His glory. See? And the good servant of Jesus Christ is going to commit to spiritual training because it's profitable, he says, for all things. And if we believe that, then it won't matter how busy we are, how demanding our occupation. And I want to give you a few illustrations so you'll understand, because that's the first thing, isn't it? I'm just too busy to spend the time in the Word of God I need to spend. Really? Well, let's compare our lives to a few people. Billy Graham has shared numerous times that his medical missionary father-in-law, Nelson Bell, traveled with his wife, Virginia, the parents of Ruth Bell Graham, in 1916, left their home and their family in the United States and sailed to China at a time when only a handful of missionaries were there. Uh, they had responded to a need of another doctor at the Presbyterian Hospital Love and Mercy Hospital. He eventually ran a 400-bed hospital in China, sometimes on his own, and he served there for 25 years. And while Dr. Bell recognized the great need of the medical concerns in, of the Chinese who came to the hospital, which is the reason why he responded. He knew their souls were of much greater significance. He recognized that healing the body was going to be temporary, really. And he believed the mission of the hospital existed, quote, primarily for the preaching of the gospel, end quote. 
And every single day, he had a Bible study. If a patient was able, they could get up and come and listen. And he made it a point. I want, to listen. I want you to hear this. To rise every morning at 4.30 and spend two or three hours in Bible reading. He didn't do his correspondence. He didn't make any rounds. He didn't do any other work. He just read the scriptures every morning. And in the busyness of his schedule, he would often wonder how much God would be willing to do through us if we would but let him. The hard part, he knew, was being willing and prepared to be led by him. Dr. Bell believed that spiritual fruit was more important than any other talent he may possess. So under the glass of his desk, he placed a note where he had listed the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, and meekness, and self-control. And, the da- and daily tried to exude these gifts among those he served. Another missionary said of Dr. Bell, quote, I never knew a man whose life so beautifully manifested those characteristics. If you would, think about Lieutenant General William K. Harrison. He was the most decorated soldier in the 30th Infantry Division, rated by General Eisenhower as the number one infantry division in all of World War II. General Harrison was the first American to enter Belgium during that war, which he did at the head of the Allied forces. He received every decoration for valor except the Congressional Medal of Honor, being honored with the Distinguished Service Cross, the Silver Star, the Bronze Star for Valor, and a Purple Heart. He was one of just a few generals to be wounded in action. When the Korean War began, he served as Chief of Staff in the United Nations Command, and because of his character and calm self-control, was ultimately President Eisenhower's choice to head the long and tedious negotiations to end the war. General Harrison was a soldier soldier. He led a busy kinetic, ultra-kinetic life, but he also was an amazing man of the word. When he was a 20-year-old West Point cadet, he determined he was going to read the Old Testament through once and the New Testament through four times every year. General Harrison did that until the end of his life. And even in the thick of World War II, he maintained his commitment by catching up during the two or three-day respites he had when they replaced and refitted following battle. So when the war ended, he was still on the schedule. And when at age 90, his failing eyesight no longer permitted his discipline, he'd read the Old Testament 70 times and the New Testament 280 times. No wonder his godliness and wisdom were proverbial. It's no surprise that the Lord used him for 18 fruitful years to lead the Officers Christian Fellowship. And beloved, I don't say that to you because they would probably want us to draw attention to their life. They didn't spend time in the spiritual gym so we would say what a great person they are. They spent time in the spiritual gym because they knew the demands of their life were going to be so intense that they wouldn't be able to function as they would honoring the Lord unless they took the time to spend there. And we are so hesitant to do that and yet so ready to get in the gym and pump some iron for a temporary benefit which will evaporate. There's nothing wrong with those things and the health benefits certainly are there. But We've got to keep that in consideration and, and, and balance that out. General Harrison's and Dr. Bell's stories tell us it's possible, even in the busiest of schedules, and I think that we'd all be hard-pressed to stack our schedule up against Dr. Bell or against General to systematically train ourselves in God's Word, and their lives remain a demonstration of the benefits of scriptural discipline. And their closest associates 
all say that, it, that every area of life, domestic, spiritual, professional, and each of the great problems they faced were informed by the Scriptures, and people marveled at their godliness and their ability to bring the Word's light to every area of life. I love that. They were living examples, neither served as an elder, they were servants of the kingdom, though, busy servants of the kingdom. And so we wrap our teaching time then in verse 10. Look there again if you would. For, it is for this we labor and strive. We fixed our hope on the living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. And, and we're going to finish this up. The Savior of all men, especially of believers, we're going to save for next time. It's, it's encapsulated on its own and we need to make that clear. But here's the thing. There's a short-term and an eternal effect both here in the passage. Godliness is profitable for all things, both in this life and the one to come. And if you remember, um, if you remember, when we went through Second Corinthians chapter five, it's a pretty important passage, and and it has some important things I think that we need to render as we think about um, training. Paul says, therefore, we have as our ambition whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. And then He gives us some reasons for being pleasing to Jesus. And, and it flows right out of our passage. It's for this we labor and strive. We serve the God who is the Savior of all men. There's a reason why we do what we do, because of who God is and what He does. Here, He gives two reasons why we should be ready and be, and be prepared. And the first one is this. In verse 10, He says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, you understand this passage, we've taught on it extensively, and so if you remember uh, something about that, the issue is this, that there is a fixed date in your life, just as sure as today, where you're going to stand before the Lord and he's going to measure how you spent your time. You're going to stand before Christ and he's going to take a look at everything that you've done, how you spent your time, how Use the resources he gave you, the words you said, the opportunities you would have been given, and he's going to judge it in light of the kingdom. That's the only criteria. How did you use every resource I gave you in light of the kingdom? I'm going to stand before the Lord to receive from his hand that reward which is commensurate with my service rendered to him, whether it's been good or useless. So I realize my own eternity is in view here when I minister. There's not going to be everybody gets a blue ribbon. Everybody doesn't get to finish in an even heat. Some won't finish very well. The Bible's pretty clear in the other passages. Some will just escape that judgment with just their robe of righteousness. Nothing that they did added up for the kingdom. Everything they did pretty much was just for themselves. They thought of themselves. They worked for the world. They worked for those things that didn't last. And all of that's going to be removed, stripped away. Someone escaping, it says, a fire in a house. You don't have anything except the clothes you're in. That's going to be the reality for some. And the reality for others will be, you spent your time where you needed to spend it. The Lord will recognize it. Those things, those gains, if you will, they came with you and stayed with you. Then here's the second one. For this we labor and strive. Here's the second one. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. Number two, I have to beyond myself and see a lost world. They don't have a perfect sure hope. See, we have it. 
He's the Savior of all men. We understand that sure hope. That's as sure as if we've repented and believed, that's just as sure as we're alive today. We have a sure hope set aside for us. The Lord is able to save completely those who place their trust in Him. There's no chance you're going to miss out on it, see? But the world doesn't have a perfect sure hope. What do they have a a surety of? Judgment. The world has a surety of judgment. And because I know how terrible it will be, that's, that's the whole point, knowing the fear of the Lord. Because I know how terrible the judgment's going to be, I use my life to persuade them with the gospel. So I'm going to work hard at training because I know this has eternal consequences. I'm going to work out at training because I know that in terms of reward and for those who may hear the gospel and in terms of my own destiny, I'm going to work hard at training. Because this impacts us in a number of different ways. And it's good to be reminded of that. These are wonderful truths that, are so, that makes us so secure and enjoy so much the things that are in the future for us. And it enriches life today, right? Working out spiritually is good for now and for later. But these are perspectives that push the servant of God to train. And success from God's perspective is to be committed to the hard work because it's a work with a purpose that's bigger than we are, see? If the corporate world can put together a purpose statement because it helps their people realize that what they're doing is bigger than they are, certainly we can. Certainly it's there, right? Do we know that we have a purpose that's much bigger than we are? There's an eternal heaven and there's an eternal hell and everybody on the face of the earth is going to spend time in one or the other. No exceptions. And when we realize that we are, that that's the truth, then we're compelled, are we not? Because, and just to use another gym term, nobody's going to skip leg day in the spiritual realm if they have a reasonable understanding of heaven's glory and the terror of hell's horror. Nobody. No one with a reasonable understanding of heaven's glory and the reasonable understanding of hell's horror and the heavy value God puts on his children could ever be mediocre in the ministry unless he has a very, very cold heart. You're not going to be mediocre, are you? If these are the things that are at stake, we don't want to be like the world in apathy. We don't want to be a church that's cold to those things that are most important to the Lord. He's given us this life. He desires for us to train, and he's told us what's going to happen at the end. It's not a big surprise when the boss is going to show up and say, let me see your desk and and the paperwork you got done today. He's going to. He's going to find out how we used our time. That's not a threat, is it? It's a motivation to know that he's not going to forget all of that. He's coming to check, and he's going to say, well done, if you spent your time there. It can be a little bit of uh, disconcerting, right? If up till now you've lived your life just for yourself for the most part, and you've lived in the world, and you've done what the world says, and you haven't really done battle with sin, and it's pretty much just about you, 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 and it's the me, 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 you know the Christmas hymn? If that's all it's been, then let me encourage you, from this point on, Make the movie different. The movie he's going to watch should be different from now on if you've forgotten all this. We've set our hope on the living God, beloved. We've set our hope is in, in the perfect tense. I love that. It means we did it in the past. It continues to go on through the present and right on into the future. We did it. It's driving us on today. We're not doing what we do for time. We're doing what we do for eternity It's the purpose which we fulfill, and it's success from God's perspective. We'll close today. Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer, if you would.
Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. I'm so grateful to uh, be with the saints. It's a joy to, to study the word together. It's so encouraging to know that we don't live up to it all the way perfectly, that we, we have, it interacts with us. We know that your Holy Spirit was at work. So he's working my own heart this week. I read the Word and read those examples and just felt so insufficient and was motivated to do better. Lord, thank you for those things. This is pleasing to you. You're a gracious God. You desire for us to to be reconciled to you, to do the things you want us to do. You give us your Word so we'll know what we're doing wrong. It's It's proper for correction and instruction in righteousness. It can reprove us and correct us and instruct us. And so, Lord, we are grateful that you were doing that today. We thank you too, Lord, that um, as we go about the spiritual training, you'll, in, you'll enrich those uh, opportunities that we have. When, we, when you see that we're, we're, we're for real about this, you give us more opportunity to impact the kingdom. And that might not be on anybody's radar, and it might not make the news, and it might not be something that somebody will stand back and say, wow, you're really a great man of God. It, it just will be, or a great woman of God. It may just be that you made an impact, and it mattered. And for eternity, the Lord didn't forget it. And it made, a, it made an impact in other people's lives that you don't even know. So Lord, help us to be about that, not so uh, people can recognize it, but so we can be prepared to do the things you want us to do in the time you want us to do them. And we're not too busy. We're not too busy. We set time aside for things we want to do. And so Lord, I pray that those things will become priority as we looked at them today. We pray this in the name of your Son, for his sake, for his glory, and all God's people said.